you would open up in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7, we'll be reading this morning from verses 8 through 13, although we will be covering quite a bit more than that. Exodus chapter 7, 8 through 13. Follow along as I read the word of our Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. Well, the tension is set for us, the main event has arrived. For several weeks, many weeks now, We have been building up to the moment of redemption, the moment of the exodus. God has been revealing himself. He has been showing himself to Moses, to Israel, and to Egypt. He has been revealing his name, Yahweh, to the people. That has been the central movement in this buildup. God is revealing himself as Yahweh the covenant king of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of promise. Now the action begins. For the next several weeks, we will be studying one of the most significant and foundational texts in all of Scripture. The Ten Plagues are not just a favorite of children's ministry flannel graphs and coloring pages. They have taken a central place in the history of God's people for good reason. They are foundational. They have been identity-shaping for God's people for millennia. The worldview of which God's people are meant to view the world gets established in the Ten Plagues and the Exodus. So it's well known And with all well-known passages, we really have to be careful, don't we? To come at them with fresh eyes. And and take our preconceptions and our pet ideas and put them underneath the authority of God's word. And so that's always a challenge for us when we come to new texts. And, And here, I think the danger we have is that we love the action. We love the events. And we sometimes can miss the real purpose. We can sometimes miss the real message being communicated by the plagues. More important than the question, what are these plagues and how do they work, is the question, 
why are they here? Why are these plagues here? God could have saved his people like that. He has all the power in the world. And yet he has put this series of events in front of his people and in front of Egypt and in front of us. Why? That really is the heartbeat of the question we want to be answering over the next few weeks. What is God communicating to his people through these events? Why has he put them here? What is he meaning for us, his people, to learn from them? You you think of even the setting, um, the whole of the Pentateuch, the whole of the story of Israel's formation and, and redemption and giving of the law and all of it was meant to be given to Israel as they were entering the promised land. It was meant to be an identity-shaping text for them. And this exodus moment with the plagues and then the exodus from Egypt is a central crux of that story. And so we have this delight here, um, but we need to be careful to view it rightly. This is not a class on Israel's interesting history. This is Theology 101, and God himself is the object lesson. He is teaching us about himself. He has told his people who he is. Now he means to show them. He has told Egypt who he is. Now he means to show them. He is intent on showing us, his new covenant people, who he is as our covenant king. Why do we need to study the mighty acts of God in the Exodus? Well, there's a simple answer. We need to have crystal clarity on how to answer the question, to whom do we belong? Who is this king of ours? Do we have a wimpy king who isn't faithful to his promises? No, we have the God of the Exodus. This needs to be the backbone of our church, the backbone of our identity as Christians. Our whole life together revolves around us banking our lives on promises of Scripture. Who made them? Who gave them to us? Can he fulfill them? Does he want to fulfill them? Does he have the ability? Does he have the desire? Our God is the God of the Exodus. And so we can rest. What stabilizes our joy? What cultivates our hope? What gives us rest? What allows us to carry on in holiness when it starts to hurt? The God to whom we belong is the God of the Exodus. He is Yahweh, our covenant king. So let's talk a bit about our plan here. Um, As you can see from the title today, we're really talking about part one. Uh, We are wrestling with how much of this to bite off at once, and this is what I arrived at. So we have the clash of kings because that's really what this event is, part one. God is going to lay siege on the kingdom of Pharaoh, and we get to be witnesses to it. He does it through really not just ten plagues, but really eleven signs, eleven mighty acts. And today we're going to, we already read the first of those signs. It's not a plague because it's not a strike against Egypt itself but it is a mighty sign, and it is playing a a part in the equation for us. And then we'll move into, so we'll study that, and then we'll move into uh, plagues one through three today. Okay, so that's the plan. We're going to get into all those. But first, 
I want to treat, and I think there's real justification for it, what we just read in verses 8 through 13 as an overture. Who remembers what an overture is? Those who are trained classically in music will probably have experienced many of them, but for those of you who are less trained classically, maybe you've seen them in movies. I'm thinking of uh, Mary Poppins. How does Mary Poppins begin? It doesn't jump right into the action. It has a musical overture. It lays out the themes of music that are going to weave themselves through the story. And what are they doing? It's not just like, oh, those are clever little themes. It's drawing us in. It's allowing us to slow down and realize something really significant is going to happen. And here's kind of the way it's going to happen. Um, Here's some of the moods and the tones that are going to come across in this story. Well, verses 8 through 13 this morning, what we just read, really lays out like an overture, a prologue, if you will. It presents to us the central themes that will be fleshed out in the plagues. And it does that in a way that allows us to slow down and be ready for what's about to come. So let's, let's treat it as an overture. And I want to, you know, a lot of our sermon today is going to be in, uh, in that passage, setting us up for what will come in the plagues. But we will, we will continue on into the plagues a bit. Um, the overture. Let's begin there in verses 8 through 13. It will present to us the central themes that will be played out in this clash of kings between God and Pharaoh, in this revelation of God to his people, to Egypt, and to us. What are the central themes that God is going to use to carry this out? First, God shows up. He initiates. He shows up in word, and he shows up in power. Second, Pharaoh will respond. And that response takes some different shapes at times, but nonetheless, that's the pattern. Pharaoh responds to the initiation of God showing up. And finally, third, Pharaoh hardens. Pharaoh hardens. We have a threefold movement of themes here in the overture that set ourselves up to be able to read the plagues in a, an informed and guided manner. They're not just a, a, a random series of events that happen that show God's power. There's structure and cohesion and form through them, and these themes really help us get within that. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend a good amount of time here in the overture, walking through these three themes. So let's, let's begin. How does God show us how he's going to play out this redemption? Well, first, first theme, God shows up in word. In power. We see that in verses 8 through 10. Look first, God showing up in word in verses 8 through 9. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it might become a serpent. So we have here God initiating, God directing, God being the first mover in this action sequence. He plans this out, and he knows what's going to take place, and he gives Moses and Aaron what they need. He shows up in word, first and foremost, and he makes makes some directives. Is he going to back up what he says will happen? Yes, verse 10. God shows up not just in word, but in power. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just 
as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. God showed up. Powerfully. Think about the reality of this. A staff. A piece of wood. Inanimate. No blood. Nothing. Transforms into a serpent. That's a mighty act. Have you ever seen that? I've never seen that. That's powerful. That would wake you up. That would make you go, whoa, what's going on here? This is huge. Which causes some, and maybe you feel this temptation in your heart, it causes some to wrestle. How, how do we deal? Let's talk up front here as we're dealing with kind of the overview and the overture, how we're going to deal with the supernaturalness of what God does in the plagues. How do you wrestle with that in your heart? Um, we live in a scientific age. Maybe I'll quote-unquote scientific age. Where we feel we have answers to everything. Um, and if we don't have the answers to it, we can figure it out by our processes, right? People have tried over and over to come up with ways to get around the supernaturalness of the Exodus narrative. You'll face it, if you were reading the commentaries or listening to sermons sometimes, you'll, you'll face it over and over and over again. There is this inclination to try to blunt the edge of what is presented in this text. So, for example, one commentator I read tried to argue that the staff really wasn't a staff. It was actually the opposite way around. It was a serpent first, but it was paralyzed by some snake charmers to look like a staff. And then when he threw it on the ground, it became a serpent unparalyzed again. And that's the, ex- the natural explanation that this otherwise evangelical, Bible-believing author puts forward for us. And I, I just want to wrestle with that with you for a second. Is that what the text says? What if we start applying that same way of reading to the rest of the Bible? So let me just push it home a bit. The gospel starts with a boy who is claimed to be God. What are you what are you going to do with that supernatural occurrence? The gospel progresses through a man who is claimed to be raised from the dead. What are we going to do with that? How are we going to explain that away? There's other explanations that people have come up with, right? But even more fundamental than that, the whole of Scripture is a revelation to us by a supernatural being, God. What are we going to do with the whole concept? You see, if you start to apply this, this way of reading, you, you start moving in a way that just erodes everything. And we've seen that throughout history, right? The, the church has given concession here, 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 and then pretty soon, Jesus didn't really die. He didn't really bodily raise from the dead. He didn't really ascend to heaven. You know, we just start eroding, eroding, eroding. So I want to encourage you, as much as it's difficult for our modern naturalistic framework to map onto the supernatural in this text sometimes. I want to encourage you to take it at face value. Because the power of this story is in the fact that God is doing something huge. He is showing himself to be a supernatural God. 
who says something and then backs it up with power. So that's my encouragement to you. If you that doesn't satisfy you, I would encourage you to come talk to me later. I'd love to talk to you about how you approach Scripture in general because it is genuinely challenging for a lot of us, I know. Um, but I want to encourage you to take the text straight up. Take the text straight up. Let the power of these texts settle in with you. Not just here with the serpent being made out of a snake or being transformed out of a, uh, out of a staff, but in, as it gets a lot more dramatic, a lot more dramatic, difficultly so. Back to the drama. We have here in this act of power the first theme presented in our overture. God shows up in word. He says what needs to happen, and in power, he delivers with this mighty act, this sign. It really acts to show Pharaoh and to show Israel who it is who is engaging in this clash of kings. It is meant to show Pharaoh that God is here and that he is mighty. But that leads us to the second theme. How does Pharaoh respond to these shows of power? We see in this overture a really good summary of how the response goes. First, it's going to be in verses 11 through 12. First notice, Pharaoh's response here is is shocking in two senses. First, um, he doesn't have any power in of himself. Notice that. He calls, he summons other people to come and deal with this show of power. So this great king of man, in himself, doesn't really have power. He's just a a guy, which in that day and age, a guy who represents the gods, who is the embodiment of the gods on earth, so to speak. And yet here, he has to call other people to do his dirty work. So that's shocking, because it's so different from God's power, who shows up right there. The other shocking thing that we notice is that there still is power. And this is a difficult thing to understand exactly what's happening here. These wise men show up, and the text says, also did the same by their secret arts. That (laughs) is shocking. We have human sorcerers performing the mighty act that God just performed turning a staff into a serpent. So I'm going to say the same argument I just made about why we should view God's act as supernatural has to apply here. It said they did the same. So if we take the first as supernatural, we've got to take this as supernatural. What do we do with that? How, how are we to understand the implications of that? How, how do these agents of Pharaoh do such things? This isn't going to be the, the only time. In fact, all... All the way up through our sermon today, for the most part, they emulate the same acts that God does. How do these agents of Pharaoh do this? I, I honestly don't know how to exactly answer that question. I'm going to lay out some thoughts. Consider first the lack of explanation in the text. Anything we do to answer this is conjecture. It's just there, presented, straight up. And as we read stories, again, submitting ourselves to what's here, when something is just said and moved on from, it's probably wise to not make a bigger deal of it 
than the author makes of it. So while this is a real question for us and I think worthy of wrestling with, we need to recognize that it is not the main point. The main point is not that Pharaoh has men who can do these things. Um, it is a point, and we're going to have to deal with it today. It is not the main point. Second, um, I can't help but think that if this was normative, Egypt would have ruled the entire world. And I say that now as we talk about staffs being turned into serpents. But it becomes a lot more obvious as water turns into blood and pestilence come upon the land and destruction takes place. It's hard to imagine that this was just totally normal in Pharaoh's household to have things like this happening. And yet, third, here's the tension. It doesn't seem like they're surprised. It doesn't seem like Pharaoh's men go, whoa, how in the world did we do that? It seems like they did their secret arts, whatever those may be, and the result happened that Pharaoh called them to do. So, I don't know how to land that ship. We believe that we live in a supernatural world where supernatural things happen. We believe that there is a supernatural being named God who governs all. And yet we also believe that there are things that happen in our world uh, for evil. That there are evil powers in our world acting. So I don't want to stand up here and say, here's how this exactly plays out in our world right now. I do want to say that if you have that bent in you, um, as I sometimes feel in myself, to squirm around the uncomfortability of the fact that there are real, powerful things in and amongst us. Um, You're going to be squirming around a lot of the Bible. And so we have to recognize that here we have human beings operating in supernatural ways. And the point here is that they are mirroring these mighty acts. They are mirroring them. The supernatural resources of Pharaoh show up and they counteract God's supernatural resources. That's profound. Because God's whole point in doing these things is to show his mighty hand, to show who he is to Pharaoh. And yet, as we see in our third theme here, because Pharaoh's mighty men can do this, he is hard. He doesn't see in the signs what he should be seeing in the signs. The snake is matched by their snakes. And yet, as this theme progresses... Look what happens next in our overture. Who's going to actually have the mighty hand in the story? It's God. Aaron's snake consumes the other snakes, foreshadowing what's really going to happen to Pharaoh's so-called power. God is going to show his hand is mightier. He is going to show he is far greater. He is going to show his superiority. This clash of kings is not going to be an equal duel. It's not just going to go neck to neck the whole way and then somebody's going to pop out a winner at the end. This clash of kings is very one-sided. God entertains Pharaoh's power for a time and then squashes it. Third theme that we are going to see in this uh, unfolding narrative of the plagues here. Pharaoh, in response to all of this show of power, hardens in his heart. 
his heart hardens. He does not relent from his decision to keep Israel. He proves stubborn. His will is strengthened. But the amazing thing we need to see here in this introduction is not simply that his heart was hardened. We need to see the final statement in verse 13 because this governs the story. How we read this story is governed here, or at least how we read the story of Pharaoh is governed here by the Lord. As the Lord had said. What did the Lord say? 7 verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Now that was a summary statement of a lot of buildup before. You could even go all the way back to the foundation of the promise to Abraham where God says, those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, Israel, I will curse. Here he is fleshing that out in function, right? He is hardening Pharaoh's heart. Why? Why does he harden his heart? Because he has judgments to deal out. Egypt, and Pharaoh in particular, has mutilated his people, has subjugated them to pain, has killed their children, has destroyed them. And God is not okay with it. He has judgments to mete out on Egypt. So you ask the question, why, why ten? Why so many? Well, that's one of the answers, and it's difficult to swallow, isn't it? Because God wants to judge them. It's one of the hard responses here. He wants to judge Egypt for their sin. So as we see the story of Pharaoh progress in the plagues, we're going to see moments where the statement is made, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And that's going to be a tension, and we're going to have to work through that as we go. I'm leaving that for Rob later. Thank you. You're welcome, Rob. It says God hardened his heart, and then it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And you want to go, well, what is it? How does that operate together? And I think all of it must be governed by these statements God made up front. God is doing a work by his will. To, to harden Pharaoh, to bring judgment to Egypt. And while Pharaoh has a part to play in that, he's not just a rag doll. He has desires that are carrying themselves out. God is ultimately working out his will. We'll have to work on that further as we continue. So this third theme, Pharaoh hardens. We have God showing up in power and in word. We have Pharaoh responding at first with his own power, and the snake being transformed into a, or a staff being transformed into a snake. But then that power is, is taken over by God's. The, the snake is consumed by God's power. And then finally, we have this response from Pharaoh of hard-heartedness. So that's the overview, the overture of this clash of kings. This is how it's going to play out for us as we continue on in the plague narrative. Um, this is the paradigm, the, the foundation from which all the little fluctuations that we're going to see along the way make their mark. And so today we're going to have a couple of fluctuations, a couple of pivots in that paradigm, um, where the exception actually makes you go, whoa, what's going on here? There's something slightly different happening. So you have this foundation laid. This is how it's going to happen in the broad picture. And then you've got these, 
this pattern is played out, but with slight alterations that draw us in and make us think and make us ask questions and see what's happening. So with this clash of kings, we have a pattern to follow. God is showing up to us, showing us his character, showing us his power, showing us his judgments. And now we can move into our first act. We can move into the the plagues themselves and read with some shaped lenses. And so let's move into it. First act. Start in verse 7, verse 14, and we'll go all the way to 8, 19. We're going to look at uh, plagues 1 through 3, or really, as the Hebrew literally says, blows. That's why it's called a plague. It's a strike against Egypt. It's an attack. It's a blow. And so we'll look at blows 1 through 3 in this duel, very one-sided duel of God against Pharaoh. Blow number one. And I admittedly am not going to have time to deal with every nuance of these stories. That's why we're looking at the the paradigm, the the outline, right? Uh, You can go back and enjoy the nuances of how the story is told because it is really fun. Um, But we're going to try to draw out the main points here. And so as we look at blow number one, don't be mad at me for skipping some of your favorite nuances. Blow number one. Verses seven, or chapter 7, 14 through 25. God is going to do an act upon the water of Egypt. And so let's look first at the first uh, theme showing up. God shows up. Starting in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard and he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out into the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff. Again, we got the staff that turned into a ser- serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to, to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch it out, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. God shows up in word with some mighty things to say. Can he follow through with this blow that he has foretold? Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water of the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. This is a blow. Just let yourself settle into the reality of this. The Nile is the central heartbeat, the lifeblood of Egypt. You just look on a map, you can still see it. I mean, it's a thin little green line around the Nile, and then the Nile... Um, Delta, where there's lots of green, but the Nile is the source of life. God struck a central nerve here. 
and it hurt. So God shows up. He shows up in word, what he's going to do. He shows up in power. He does it. How does Pharaoh respond? Look at verse 22. Again, the, the magicians of, Ner- of Pharaoh duplicate the sign. They do, as it says, the same. They do the same. So they strike the blood of, or the, the water of Egypt and turn it into blood. How that all played together, I don't know. It doesn't explain it. How can all the water be blood? And now we're adding more blood. The point is that it says they did it. They emulated it. They repeated it. So even in this great sign, this far-reaching sign, Pharaoh's uh, sorcerers have this ability. And it leads Pharaoh to a response. Verses 22 onward. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so, giving a you know, a, a result, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water in the Nile. He did not take even this to heart. Think of what his people were facing. They had to dig holes in order to find clean water somehow because all their water was spoiled. One of the things we've been drawing out in Exodus is this contrast being established between Pharaoh as a king and Yahweh as a king. Look at where Pharaoh's kingship takes his people. Look at the suffering they're enduring. He is not a good king. He leads his people to suffer, and then he doesn't even take it to heart. He's just hard. So below number one, the water turned to blood. The people suffer. Pharaoh's hard. God shows his power. Let's go to our below number two. Chapter eight, one through fifteen. Here, God is going to draw from the Nile a pest, some frogs. Thinking of some of you youth, you love frogs, you would not love this situation. This is not a good situation of frogs. First, we see the pattern continue. God shows up in word, one through five. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Again, this is a huge blow. Spoiling food, making everything disgusting. I mean, who knows what kind of diseases are spread by all of this? This is nasty. God is bringing a real judgment, a real blow upon the Egyptians. But can he do it? So 
clearing, stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. God's word proves in his power. How does Pharaoh respond? But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land. Again, hard to imagine exactly how that's happening, but the point is, is that God's power is still being matched somehow. And it's leading, ultimately, to the third movement. But here, again, as I said, as we laid that foundation of the three themes, every time we get a deviation from that theme, we're meant to like draw in and tune in. Here in verse 8, with Pharaoh's response, we get a deviation. Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Whoa! There's an interesting reversal. Who's in control now? Pharaoh's like, I can't do anything about this. So you need to go talk to God and have him stop this. Well, that seems like soft-heartedness. It seems like he's kind of getting the picture. Continue on. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. God relents. God gives reprieve. They gathered the frogs into heaps, and the land stank from the dead frogs. But here's the punch, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord said. So Pharaoh has the pressure removed from him. Pressure from outside. It was also pressure for his own life. It covered all the land of Egypt. I mean, this was a nuisance for Pharaoh too. The pressure is relieved and his heart goes right back into stubbornness as the Lord said. Pharaoh is not getting the picture. He is not understanding what is happening. And central to that not getting the picture, so far, has been the fact that things have been done by his people that God is so-called showing. That's been one of the big things. So let's go on to the third plague here, and you'll see, again, a pivot, an alteration of the pattern. How does God show up? In this third blow. Verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. Oof. So he's striking the dust, which in Egypt there's a lot of. And it all becomes gnats. I've, uh, I, I seem to have remembered our youth group going up to... Porcupine Mountains this summer, and not enjoying the bugs there very much. Did I get an amen from the group? Yeah. Can you imagine this? And this is just hard to get our heads around. Like, so many gnats that it's compared to the sand, the dust. It would be engrossing. It would be destructive. It would be debilitating. It is a blow, a judgment. And it happens, as God said it would. And they did so, verse 17. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. 
All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. God proves faithful yet again to his word. He says he's going to do something, and he follows through and is able and does it. That's a huge revelation of his character for us. His promises prove true. When he says he's going to do something, he does it. How does Pharaoh respond to this show of power? This is where the story gets interesting. The magicians tried, verse 18. They tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. You can just visualize the snakes getting swallowed. The power of God, as we of course knew was going to happen, outmatches the power of Egypt. The magicians can't figure out how to make this happen. And the result for them is beautiful. The magician said to Pharaoh, verse 19, this is the finger of God. Why is all this happening? So that Pharaoh would know that God is in his midst and is calling him to do something. His magicians are seeing it. Who knows how far they got along in their belief. But the point here is is that they see this is someone outside of our pay grade. We're not messing with somebody we can mess with anymore. This is the finger of God. The people around Pharaoh are getting the message. Theme three. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So now he's not even listening to his own ministers. They've come to this correct conclusion, a conclusion that would have changed everything. Think of what Egypt would have been spared if at that moment he would have relented. His hard-heartedness leads to judgment for Egypt, just as God designed God still has judgments to deal out on that wicked people. He is faithful to his promise to curse those who curse his people. He is a serious covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And we see it even in the the difficult aspects of his covenant-keeping. As Israel is looking on this, They are meant to see that their God is faithful for them. He is faithful to curse those who have hurt him or hurt them. And he will be faithful to bless them and bring them out of Egypt. They are meant to see that. And Israel, hundreds of years later, is meant to see that in their God and be faithful to him. We are meant to see that in our God and be faithful to him. To respond to his covenant keeping with soft hearts that believe in his word, and obey. God is laying out for us in these blows against Egypt his character. He's revealing to us his name. He said it. Now he's showing it. So what is for us here as as New Covenant 21st century believers? Behold your covenant king. He is supreme. He is faithful. He has made promises to us that are meant to stabilize us, to give us hope, to give us rest, to give us unity as a people, to give us uh, an eye to see the world rightly, to see the things in the world rightly, to hope in a a future that is sure. 
And he has proven to us that he fulfills his promise. Let these blows of judgment against Egypt be be signs of salvation to you. I just personally want to ask, are you fearful of the powers in this world? Maybe let me ask it a different way. Why are you fearful of the powers in this world? We all face it. Maybe that's your boss who seems debilitating towards you as a believer. Maybe that's a difficult parent who makes you fear because of their wickedness. Maybe that's political figures who, if they come into power, make you fear what they might accomplish. You fear? Why? Our king, our covenant king, is the God of the Exodus. Has that really sunk into our imagination? Think about what sort of people we've become. We've become bold. We've become faithful. He is the king who has rescued us from the greatest enemy of all, death itself. He didn't stop in Egypt, showing his mighty hand. He went all the way to the grave and defeated the very thing that gives us fear, death itself. We have a a king who has brought us into relationship and has told us he's going to do stuff. And he fulfills what he says. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this testimony recorded for us in these mighty acts of salvation and judgment. I pray that for those here who do not know you, who do not come to you as their Savior and as their Lord, I pray that you would open their hearts to see you rightly, that they would not be like Pharaoh, stubborn, trenched in his ways, that they'd be soft, and see the writing on the wall, and turn and believe. I pray for the church here, those who are yours, that we would be stabilized by these truths, that we'd come to a place of conviction more and more of your covenant-making nature, the fact that you make promises towards your people, and your covenant-keeping nature, that you fulfill what you have told us you're going to do. I pray these things in your name.